the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Spinning Yarns by the Yule Log, a couple of Christmas ghosts, a golem, and a rather nasty talking cat. Plus, part 41 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right, now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. For your Christmas cheer and or general cheer, we have a virtual fireside chat with legendary Bain author David Drake. We talk a lot about David's early days, and he gives us some insight into his new short story collection, Night and Demons. Night and Demons collects many of Dave's early stories, particularly the horror and dark fantasy tales. All the stories have great introductions by Dave, too, that really give a sense of how a young writer got his start, and some of the interesting people, really fascinating people he met along the way. We'll talk with Dave in a moment, but first, Bain Associate Editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. Aha, it's Christmas Eve day, and you still need that one special present. Have no fear, Bain eBooks gift certificates are here. They certainly are. Go to BainEbooks.com and look on that left sidebar where it says gift certificate and click on it. Then give the gift that will always be valued, a great book. That's right. Hey, also over at the Bain.com website, we have some excellent new free fiction and nonfiction. We have a wonderful story by Frank Chadwick that takes place in an alternate past 1887. It's espionage and mystery on a Zeppelin flight with a beautiful Mata Harry from France and a fellow named Baron Renfrew from England, who is certainly more than he seems... And also on the Bain.com website are two nonfiction articles. One is the continuing series by Tom Crapman called Training for War. Tom is both a wonderful writer of science fiction and a retired lieutenant colonel. Amazingly, Training for War is exactly what the series deals with, and Tom has some fascinating insights that might apply to any situation in life where the chips are down. Yeah, those are great articles, and you can read them uh, one at a time or all at once. And we have a most excellent article dealing with exoplanets. Those are the planets scientists have been discovering circling other suns, and some traveling through interstellar space in the darkness. The article discusses how they find these things, the mind-boggling nature of some of those exoplanets, and plans for future detection. It's a great piece, so check it out. I'm joined by Editor Emeritus Hank Davis today, and we want to welcome David Drake to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. Hi, Hank. Hi, Tony. David Drake is the author of many novels, including the ongoing Republic of Cinnabar space opera series, featuring uh, Captain Daniel Leary and his friend Intelligence Officer Adele Mundy. He is the creator of the Hammer Slammer series of military science fiction novels, and of great big fantasy novels in his Lord of the Isles books. I, is that the name of the series, Dave, or is that just one of uh, the... Yeah, it's the Lord of the Isles series, but there are also the Books of the Elements, which I am plotting the fourth and final of, even as we speak. Well, uh, not even as we speak, but I broke it to speak. Big old fantasy tales. There's no way to do justice in a few minutes. As as you point out, you've got a lot of things out there to the work of an author with the the breadth and depth of Dave's writing career. So we thought we'd concentrate on one side of Dave's work, horror and dark fantasy stories and novellas. A great many of these are collected in a new collection by David Drake, Night and Demons, out this month in mass market at booksellers everywhere. The stories in Night and Demons span a huge range of settings from prehistoric time to ancient and late Rome to medieval Europe and finally into 20th century America and beyond into our century. Yet, there is that unmistakable great quality to them all, the conciseness of the prose. Dave is not ornate, but when you hit a metaphor or some imagery in his work, it's a spot-on uh, spot kind of thing, just the right word or phrase. Most of all, it's the content. It's gritty, 
even the lighter fare might be considered rather grim if it were another writer's work. I'm really a, a really nice person. People love me. Really. <laughs> He's, he's really warm and fuzzy, folks. One of the great features of uh, Night and Demons is that Dave has written extensive introductions for each of the stories in the collection. Taken together, these form a sort of abbreviated biography of his writing life and the amazing folks he's met and worked with along the way, and reflections on storytelling that, that many a beginning writer might do well to reflect on. Dave, you started out sending stories to a man who ran a small press in Wisconsin, can you tell us about your first efforts to write and how you sold your first stories? Uh, yeah, M Mr. Derleth had founded Arkham House in the late 30s to put uh, his friend H.P. Lovecraft's work in hardcover. And um, he continued a, a press publishing, basically pulp reprint of fiction mostly from weird tales. And I I love the fiction. I'd always wanted to read weird tales, but it just disappeared before I started buying magazines. And um, I began buying Arkham House books. And um, my fiancé and I actually drove up from Iowa to Wisconsin, which, you know, uh, wasn't very far, to Sauk City, Wisconsin, and um, visited him and the publishing house. <laughs> it was actually kind of <laughs> funny. I, I walked into the local post office asking where uh, Arkham House was, and there was, you know, puzzled expressions all around. And I said, uh, Mr. Derleth's publishing company? Oh, Augie Derleth's place. <laughs> they, they called they him They sent Augie. me out the road to... Uh -huh. uh, to what was actually his house, uh, which he ran a uh, a small press publishing company out of. And that was actually really valuable to me because it taught me that a publisher was somebody who published books, not a huge company somewhere, in, probably in New York. And in the course of looking through the books and, and buying as much as I had money, which... After the fact, by the way, this has been a really good investment. This is what <laughs> I, I was doing, so. and, and indeed I haven't sold any of them since either. But um, I saw the book that had just come there from the printers, and it was by a young fellow in England who was writing his own take on the Lovecraft's Arkham and Innsmouth story, and the fellow was John Ramsey Campbell, who in later years mm -hmm. uh, dropped the John because there was already a John Campbell in uh, the SF publishing field, and <laughs> that the editor of, of Astounding had longevity on, on Ramsey, uh, but he just his first book had just come out. And I looked at the picture of Ramsey on the back of the cover, and he looked 15 years old. And in fact, he was two years younger than I was. I was 19. And I thought, wow, I always told myself that when I got old enough to, to do it, I was going to sell a story. Didn't want to be a writer, but I was going to sell a story. I mean, I wanted to be a writer, but, it, you know, the notion of being a, a professional writer is absurd, and I knew it was absurd. And I looked at the picture of Ramsey and thought, well, I guess I'm old enough. <laughs> <laughs> the time had come. Yeah. I, I got back home, and I wrote Mr. Derleth. I didn't dare say anything at the time, but I wrote him and said, um... If I sent you a story, because he was doing some original anthologies at the time, if I sent you a story, would you uh, consider it? And he rather grumpily said he would. And um, I did a story at 1,800 words, and he sent it back saying that uh, 
it was a good plot outline. Now write the story. So I expanded it enormously to uh, 3,500 words. And <laughs> you write about the conciseness of my prose. I started early being concise. <laughs> and uh, he told me to, all right, I had a story now. I'll cut out all the purple passages. I didn't know what he was talking about instead of asking. I did what I thought. Yeah, I was modeling the story on Mr. Derlitz's own back-of-the-book uh, short stories ripped off in a few hours. That was a crucial thing about meeting Mr. Derlitz. You know, more even than that he bought the story, it's that a publisher is just a person. Yeah, I, re I remember being stricken with the unfairness of life one day. Back in the very late 50s or early 60s, because my rotten kid brother was homesick, and he watched the last hour of the Today Show, which I generally did get to see because that was from 8 to 9. Then it was only a two-hour show. <laughs> and Arthur C. Clarke was on it. And I was at school at the, while Arthur C. Clark, my brother was watching Arthur C. Clarke, and Richard said, ooh, he's so British. <laughs> when I got home and he told me his good he fortune. I, I didn't realize at the time I would actually uh, uh, speak bubblingly to Arthur C. Clarke at, a, uh, at conventions later. Until well we, done. Until he got, so, uh, uh, got to the point where he didn't need to go to conventions anymore. I, I had some slight correspondence with him. Uh -huh. I asked him why his stuff didn't appear in Astounding, because he would have seemed to be an obvious choice for Campbell mm -hmm. in the 40s and 50s. What did he say? Uh, he said he wasn't sure, because it all was done through his agent, but he did know that against the fall of night, had been rejected by Campbell because it was just too downbeat. But, yeah, yeah, that would explain it. So I, I always told myself that when I got old enough to to do it, I was going to sell a story. I, I got back home and I wrote Mr. Derleth, if I sent you a story, would you uh, consider it? But I sent it off and he sent back the most brutal acceptance letter I've ever seen. And this still isn't right. Here's $35. I'm going to have to rewrite it myself. Compare it the printed version with your carbon and learn how not to write the next time. I didn't even have a carbon. I was really ignorant. <laughs> Utterly crushed me, but I had made $35. Yeah, and and a sale, and at the same time, gotten completely destroyed. By, yeah, I know. By it August was six trip. months before I tried to write another story. Oh. <laughs> I, I've heard of brutal rejection letters, and I've seen some, but I've never seen anything quite as brutal as that acceptance letter that I got, oh. along with the $35 check. He, he did give me the option of sending the check back. Uh, <laughs> Well, that that story became uh, Denkirch, is that correct? Yeah, that the... uh, Denkirch, uh, which was his title uh, based on the, the name of the lead character. Um, all I can say about, he, he liked to name, Mr. Derleth did, he liked to name characters, or name stories after lead characters. I think it's a bad plan. Uh, the only good thing I will say about the title is, it is better than either of my attempts to title it. So, you know, I, I don't really blame him, but I think that's actually the major change that he made also was the title. Well, it's a pretty good story, for, especially for a 19-year-old. It's, uh, it's, it's got some heavy Lovecraft uh, influence in there, though. I can... Yeah, well, it, it's a really good pastiche of a 1938 weird tale story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, if it had appeared in a 1938 Weird Tales, no one would have thought anything of it. I mean, it wouldn't have been the best thing in the issue, but it wouldn't have been out of place. No one would have said, God, why did you print that stinker? It, it's not. It's um, 
it's a very careful crafting of something that only a fool would have done in 1965. <laughs> or somebody inexperienced. Well, that's how you get experienced by yeah. falling on your face, and I did. Well, uh, it's, but it's, that was that was my first sale, all right. And I I sold three more to Miss, and I sold a genuine Italian sonnet. That is a, a sonnet on five rhymes. Mm-hmm. Um, my only published verse, by the way. Now these appeared in uh, what was the the magazine he was putting out called? Hank told me. Oh, the Arkham Collector. The Arkham Collector, which published original fiction. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. As a matter of fact, it published the first story by uh, Brian Lumley, uh, who was another. Mm-hmm. Ramsey and Brian Lumley and myself are three writers whom Mr. Derleth picked out of the slush pile, and all of us have had very respectable careers since then. Now, there were a lot of others who didn't, but that's still a pretty decent percentage, uh, especially given that we were writing fantasy fiction in the 60s when there wasn't a market for it. Well, let's let's stay in Iowa for a moment, which is where, where you were raised, I, I think. Um, Born and raised, yep. One of the stories that particularly stood out to me is the lead story, uh, the opening story, The Red Lear. Um, now, this is kind of a classic disturbing the Indian uh, graveyard story, but it's 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 got dairy farming in it, and it, it's really that farming character that sticks with you. Um, farm life can be tough, can't it? I the first bankruptcy in America, that is before there were United States, was a farmer in Pennsylvania, <laughs> and you know nothing much has changed for the better since then. Uh, it's really brutal. Uh, I wasn't raised on a farm myself. My wife was, and the the description of the farm and farm life is quite real. It's physically dangerous. The equipment is dangerous. The insecticides that are used were the basis of nerve gas. It was from uh, these uh, organophosphate insecticides that nerve gas was developed during World War II. Never used, but it was developed then. Uh, It's just a really... You've got to milk the cows. It doesn't matter how you feel, and it really doesn't matter that it's 20 below out there, which, you know, regularly every winter in Iowa, it was. Yeah, you can't call it sick. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it just... This is tough. This is really, really tough. And you get tough people. Um, not always in a good way. Yeah, I, well, I love the moment in the story where the dairyman uh, explains why they can't tell anybody about why about what really mutilated the cows. And it was a very practical explanation that, that a farmer would make. Yeah, exactly. Uh <laughs> Word gets out, we won't be able to sell our milk, and we'll all starve. We lose the farm. That's that makes so much better sense than uh, in you know your typical horror story. We can't. The populace will will go crazy. They'll rampage. No. No, they won't. But they'll you know stop buying your they'll milk. Stop buying your <laughs> you milk. Be really sure of that. You say in one of your story introductions, uh, and I quote: "Latin has been my soul's anchor." Um, there's some really wonderful and, and just finely detailed stories set in Roman times in the collection. Can you tell us a bit about what studying Latin and, and really reading deeply into the literature has meant to your, your life and work? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of embarrassed about that, my soul's anchor. I mean, it, it's a highfalutin, but it's true. I mean, you know, it, it, it's really true. I took a couple years of Latin in high school, didn't have any particular affection for it. I was very good at sight reading, but I, I didn't like doing grammar in Latin any better than I did in English. And then I got to the University of Iowa, which was over 15,000 people. Clinton, where I'd come from, was a little over 30,000. So I had gone from I'd gone into a completely new 
system in a community that was totally new to me and built completely on totally different principles from a, an industrial community in Iowa, which is what Clinton was. That's, um, they actually, the, the car shops there, uh, Chicago Northwestern car shops, developed the original caboose, you know, the one with the little cupola on top as opposed to the, the bay window. Mm-hmm. of the later models, but that that original caboose, that was developed in Clinton, Iowa. <laughs> not, not a hell of a lot to do with an academic community, which the University of Iowa certainly was. And I was just drowning. I mean, you know, I could handle classwork, but I didn't know anybody. I didn't understand the system. A wonderful library, and I buried myself in the library to a degree, but I really needed something to anchor myself to to where I'd grown up, Um, high school and and the people around me then. So I went back to Latin. I borrowed a uh, discarded Latin, um, the Latin text that we'd used. Uh, in school. I borrowed a copy from a fellow classmate. And um, I just, I studied it like I never had before. And then I started taking Latin classes again just to to settle myself, to give me something that was familiar. And I wound up at the end of, you know, <laughs> another three years with... Um, 30 semester hours of Latin and Greek. So I said to my advisor, I was a history major, I said to my advisor, look, I've I've got these 30 semester hours. Um, Can I be a double major? And he looked in and said, well, don't see why not. So (laughs) I... um, But you were also, and when you were in law school, um, it... Didn't you say in one of your introductions that um, to settle yourself there, that to, you took time off and, and to to um, entertain yourself, you took Latin courses? Oh, yeah, it wasn't time off. I was auditing him in addition to a normal load in law school. <laughs> I, I wasn't taking him for credit. Yeah, but that was your recreation. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, a very focused recreation, but it was intellectual in a sense that the law isn't. and. Hell, I carried carried a copy of Horace with me through Cambodia. uh, After this has continued to be the way translating Latin or or any language, but but Latin for me has been. it, It is a very focused intellectual activity that has nothing to do with anything else or doing, and it takes you out of yourself and forces you to use 100% of yourself in an activity that is apart from what you're normally doing. It isn't mindless work. It's very mindful work, and it, it breaks you out of the drudgery. The I shouldn't say drudgery. It makes it sound awful. I, I love writing, but it takes about 150 days. It takes, you know, five solid months of solid work to uh, write a book. And that's get up in the morning, work. Get up in the morning, work. Get up in the morning, work. And you keep doing that every day for, four, for five months. And... Latin gives me a chance of using my brain but getting it out of all the ruts. And I do that, and I did it in Vietnam, and I sure hell did it in law school as well. And, um, you know, it's what works for me. (laughs) I'm not recommending it for other people, but and it also gives me really great settings. Yeah, that was, um, I mean, your Roman stories feel like that you're there. Um, what about 
the the Vetidius and Dama stories, which are in these uh, in the collection. There's three of them. <laughs> the the Vetidius Dama, yeah. Um, I, I'd always been fascinated by the the third century A.D. the third century crisis, so to speak. Uh, you know, Rome fell. You can you can decide when the the traditional date is 476 A.D. But in the middle of the third century, you had a situation that looked like it was terminal. It it looked as though the Roman Empire was dead. Uh, It was falling apart. It had major enemies on several frontiers. And I've always found that fascinating because it is not particularly well documented. You know, we know it happened. Um... But I got into that, and I wrote a story, uh, and it was the last one I sold to Mr. Derleth, as a matter of fact. Um, I wrote a story involving the siege and capture of a fortress on the eastern frontier, um, Amida. Uh, what is now the city of the Arbaker on uh, Euphrates. Mm-hmm. And I, I I was using the account by a Roman officer who also was a 4th century historian uh, of that siege. And I, um, I sent it off. It, it was, it's actually the first story I've done that I think was honestly publishable. You know, could have been published anywhere. Uh, the previous three, Mr. Derleth took for good reason, but I don't consider fully professional. And, um, this one he took. And um, sent the check off the next day, and the sent the check off on a Saturday, and Sunday morning he died, which uh, meant I had to find another market, obviously. But I I used an officer of the sort of the uh, Ammianus Marcellinus, who had written the. Um, you know, this account. That's the historian's name? That's the history, yes. Uh, but he was also a Roman officer. He was one of the uh, Equites Singulares. He, he, a soldier, but they were they were trusted. They were the eyes and ears of the emperor also. Um, and he was in Amida, uh, with a brief from the emperor, he was not in uh, local command. And when the Persians came in one way through the collapsed wall, he opened the gate on the opposite side of the city and rode rode west, which is why he survived to uh, to write an account of the 4th century. Um, but I then, when I was writing, as I say, I needed a new market, so I wrote another story using the same characters of a merchant and the same officer. And, um, I, I used the same characters just because, well, I had them. They were handy. And it got bounced by FNSF and a number of other things. And at that point, something kind of interesting happened. Uh, my friends, Manly Wade Wellman and Carl Wagner, who are also writers, um, all living in, in or near Chapel Hill, uh, they both suggested that I use the Vietnam setting because that was modern day, and I had actually been there. 
Mm-hmm. All right. So I wrote another story that was uh, set in, well, actually Cambodia. <laughs> it didn't really matter. There, there weren't street signs where I was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we went in through the parrot speak, uh, the black horse. Um, the black horse was the, your unit. Uh, yes, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Um, a, um, I consider it the finest combat unit in the U.S. Army in Vietnam. Uh, there are people who would argue, but no one would argue that the Black Horse wasn't in the running. I mean, there are people who'd say, oh, First Air Cav or Big Red One, or, or for that matter, the Marines. Um, but no no one's going to deny that we we were in the top tier. And um, I was, I'm not pleased about Vietnam. I am not pleased about having been in Vietnam or any of the things that happened to me there. But I served with an elite military unit, and I can say that, and very damn few people can say that. Um, and I'd be just as happy if I couldn't, but given that it's the truth, um, I'll take <laughs> I'll take what use of it I can get. So, well, what is so you were drafted out of law school? Um, yes, and. <laughs> You, I mean, you say over and over again what a profound and, and not in a good way experience Vietnam was on you. Um, and some of the most powerful stories in the collection are set in Vietnam or have characters who were there. Uh, tell us a little bit about the experience. What was it that, that was so negative and yet so uh, affecting? I spent my whole tour expecting to die. I didn't. Um, but I basically gave myself up for dead. And, and, and just randomly, I mean, you, you know, it's not how well trained you are or anything like that. If, if you simply got on the wrong vehicle and that's the vehicle that rolled over a mine and flipped over on its back and you were under it, uh, I did, I don't care how much training you've had, you're dead. It doesn't matter. Um, you you get a feel for the fragility of life and the utter pointlessness of everything. And as I say, you give yourself up for dead. I did. Um, and the problem is that when you get back to the world, which I then did on you know, <laughs> January 13th, 1971, then you're still dead. I, I mean, you, you can't say, oops, well, that's over. It's not over. It'll never be over. Um, I have described myself as, you know, the person I was in 1968 when I was drafted, when Mr. McNamara eliminated the graduate student deferment, and I was drafted in quite a lot of grad students. About a third of my basic training company was of grad students. Um, so I wasn't unique. Um, but the person I was then was simply smashed to rubble. And what got off the plane there at Travis Air Force Base in 1971 was a bag that looked about the same but was just filled with a rubble of a personality that was sort of glued together by anger. And I haven't lost the anger. Um, but it's really very evident in most most of the stories in Night and Demon are pretty early. Mm -hmm. And um, the anger is, is just really, really unfortunate. Bleakness is really unfortunate. Um, 
I genuinely don't believe in anything. And I believe I'm going to die. And I will. Uh, but in a manner of speaking, I, I sort of figure I died in 1970. And I don't mean awful things happened to me. Because, you know, I, I wasn't shot. The, the only hole I wound up with was one from a boil. Several from a boil, from boils, as a matter of fact, because, um, you know, hygiene was a problem even if you're working at it. Um, and uh, that's not a really good way to be, but it sure gave me something to write about. Yeah. Well, it one of the stories, uh, the Vietnam stories in the collection Dancer in the Flames, for instance, is uh, it's a great twist story, but it what really caught me unawares, uh, the, tri the twist did, but the eerie image of this guy burning plastic explosive, and he's sort of in a dream state. Um, it, it, it caught something that I think a lot of people try to communicate who write about Vietnam um, or, or the experience of being in, a, in such a situation as you describe did. Um, did you ever see anybody burn C4, by the way? Oh, Christ, yes. <laughs> I didn't make any of that up. <laughs> that, was, that seemed kind of dangerous to me. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, listen, we were in Cambodia. <laughs> uh, you know, just, just where, where is the danger part? You know, how much of an increment do you think that was over anything else that was happening? True. Uh yeah, that, that's completely real. Um, actually, we used it to to heat things. Um, in my unit, it was mostly used uh, for just heating things like um, pop it yourself, uh, you know, little pre-packs of popcorn. But you had to, <laughs> you had to hold the the little aluminum canister uh, a considerable distance above the flame because the flame was, I think, 1,100 degrees centigrade. And if you got it anywhere close to the aluminum, the aluminum was gone, and, and then your your popcorn kernels all dropped out. But no, I, I didn't make any of that stuff yeah. up. Um, you, were, you were an English major, weren't you? Me? Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, I, no, I say that because the people who really focus on Dancer in the Flames as this this wonderful piece of existential angst, are, they're all English majors. Uh, I was just writing about the reality. You know, really, there, there's almost no fiction in that. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know what I was actually. I was a philosophy major, if you must know. I was a philosophy major in college, and then I have a master's in English. Mm -hmm. but definitely uh, English-oriented kind of. Uh, yeah, but. But seriously, that is, um, that's why I, it's your reaction to Dancer in the Flames that, I don't mean it isn't a good story, it is a good story, but it is the particular good story yeah. well, that maybe, English majors focus on. Yeah, well, because you read so many twist stories that, that don't work, that it, you know, it's, the twist just is sort of anticlimactic, but this one really, I mean, it seems like it, it just flows out of the story when the when the twist comes we can't say what it is of course yeah but um i was there <laughs> but anyway it's, it's a great story there's another uh vietnam related story that's that's short and sweet and powerful in the collection which is something had to be done um and you talk about in that one you have a guy who's who's won a medal uh you talk about getting the details right and and the balancing act of, of that when you're writing fiction. Uh, I think this is something a lot of uh, beginning writers might profit from, your uh, your experience, on your uh, advice on that. <laughs> well, I, I always try very hard to get it right. Uh, I have learned, oddly enough, that one of the ways you can tell if something is real that is, if the person has real experience, is the things he gets wrong. Because in country, everybody got certain things wrong. And, and that's actually a, a true... Um, I was basing it on a, a real person whom I was told had a silver star with V. Uh, 
a guy whose job was unit clerk uh, wrote me years later and explained that the Silver Star is automatically for Valor, so you don't have the, the V for Valor um, additive as you do with the Arcom or the Bronze Star. And in reality, the person that I was modeling the incident on um, probably had a Bronze Star with V because he was a Spec 4. Uh, conscientious objector, but he was a medic, and uh, he'd gotten the award for at a very hot firebase as mortar and rocket fire was coming in on firebase. Uh, he had brought in a medevac helicopter by standing in the 1LC uh, standing in the middle of it, waving a pair of yellow light wands to guide the helicopter in. And um, hated the Army, hated the war, absolutely right to. Uh, but he was a medic, and he did his job, and he got you know, the award. But he was a spec four, so they weren't going to give him the silver star. <laughs> uh, so I got it wrong. Mm. And I, did, I wound up leaving it in the story after I learned that, just to remind me that um, the story was important, the background was important, uh, that particular bit was wrong, but I was going to leave it because that's what I'd been told by people who'd been there at the time. Yeah, I mean, it gave uh, getting the details wrong in the in in the right manner perhaps, uh, because you've been there and done that. Um. There, there's another thing that I, I sort of point to. Um, there was a type of ammunition, green ball, uh, which was a shrapnel round, and we got heavy loads of it, and it wasn't well-liked in my unit, and so they would burn it off as quick as they could in mad minutes. This is something you shoot out of a tank? Uh, yes. Yeah, this is a 90-millimeter shrapnel round. And I was told, and, you know, by people who believed it, um, and I believed it, that the green ball uh, blew the muzzle brakes off tanks. And you would see a lot of tanks that were missing their muzzle brakes. Uh, the truth is that... The, the, the tank cannon was actually designed to be fired a few hundred times in its lifetime in a battle in Western Europe. And we're firing about 4,000 rounds out of each of these barrels because so, we were firing shrapnel and green ball and <laughs> HE uh, at very short ranges in the jungle. And so 4,000 rounds meant that the, uh, the welds on the uh, muzzle brake would fracture. And because they were using rapid fire with green ball quite a lot to get rid of it, uh, it was very likely going to blow off when you're firing green ball. Uh, so that's a mistake, but it's a mistake that everybody made. And, you know, that's the sort of thing um, my unit the 11th ACR, the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment. Now, that's wrong. It's actually the 11th Armored Cavalry. We were a regiment, but that wasn't part of the name. But it's what everybody said. So if you get it right, because you looked it up and you get the correct answer, it means you weren't there. Well, I was there. So there. That was part one of an interview with David Drake. We'll have part two next time on the podcast. In the meantime, have a very Merry Christmas. And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now.
If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering, low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling, and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion, is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the RMN forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. In the Mobius system, Solid Ground and Space Forces have arrived to put down rebellion against the Solarian-supported puppet government. But the tables are turned when Royal Manticoran Navy Commodore Sir Avers Terakov shows up with a sizable detachment of Gold Peak's fleet. The overmatched Solly Picket Force is given its chance to surrender. And if they don't, Terakov is about to show the Sollies that the Royal Manticoran Navy has every intention of coming to the aid of the Mobius System rebels. Here is part 41 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 31 Sir Ivar's Terakov watched his tactical plot as his flagship and the other units of his small task group settled into orbit around Mobius Beta. HMS Clouds Lax spread out around the planet, and Colonel Alex Cmax Marine Assault Shuttles moved out of the big Sealax boat bays behind them. The bulk of the task group's small craft were otherwise occupied, however. They were busy collecting the life pods of the Solarian personnel whose ships had blown themselves up an hour and a half before. All right, Atlante, he said. Given how well Helen's prescription worked out with Commander Watson... I think we'll just let President Lombroso and Brigadier Usel and friends sweat for a little bit before we talk to them, too. See if you can get a response over Miss Summers' link instead. Yes, sir. Lieutenant Montella turned to her console, and Terkov folded his arms across his chest as he gazed into the master visual display at the blue, green, and dun-colored planet so far below. Commander Pope stepped up beside him. Do you really think Brightbox going to be in a position to answer, sir? The chief of staff asked softly. I don't know, Tom, Terakov replied. He twitched his shoulders. Given what these people have been up to, I just don't know. If his security held, maybe, but... His voice trailed off, and he shook his head. The news reports had been bad enough on the way in. Now that they'd entered orbit and deployed air-breathing recon platforms, it was even worse. Several square blocks of landing lay in charred, flattened ruins. Most of the destroyed structures, which happened just coincidentally, of course, to lie in the middle of the capital city's low-income housing, far away from the important corporate assets downtown, seemed to have been old-style construction, possibly left over from the city's earliest days and built out of native materials. Few of those buildings had been more than five or six stories tall, but two much more modern towers had been caught in the Holocaust and towered over the ashes at their feet like burned-out Sphinxian crown oaks. And then, of course, there were the half-dozen or so craters, which could only have been created by kinetic strikes. Three of them, not that far from landing, were surrounded by the tattered ruins of fire and blast-shredded towns. None of them liked what they suggested— and not just because of the loss of life they undoubtedly represented. Kinetic weapons were a routine method of supplying fire support for planetary forces and had been for well over a thousand T-years. Over that time, they had been refined into precision weapons capable of pinpoint strikes and almost infinitely variable effective yields. 
but no one had been interested in pinpoint accuracy when it came to those strikes. They'd been terror attacks, exactly the sort of attack the Eridani edict was supposed to prevent, although he was certain Yusel and Lombroso would justify them as military necessities. And as he thought about them, Tarakov found himself wishing Watson hadn't taken his offer to abandon ship. But those scars were at least a week old. They lacked the immediacy of what was happening and landing even now. As Tarakov and Pope watched, the image on one of the secondary visual displays CIC had tied into their air-breathing recon platforms changed, and Tarakov's blue eyes were colder than Arctic ice as he saw the line of bodies hanging from an obviously prefabricated, mass-produced gallows. There must have been twenty-five of them, he thought, as the platform zoomed in on them, and not all of those bodies had belonged to adults. I want this imagery absolutely nailed down, Stilt, he said without looking away. He didn't raise his voice, yet a couple of people on the flag bridge flinched when they heard it. I don't want any doubt, any ambiguity, about what we saw or where we saw it before we ever landed. Yes, sir, Commander Lewis acknowledged. Helen sat very still at her own console. She wanted to look away from those dangling bodies. They'd obviously been there for a while, judging by the extent of decay. Even as she watched, one of Mobius Beta's avions landed on the central beam of the gallows. It was one of the local planetary ecosystem's buzzard analogs, and she felt her gorge trying to rise as it stretched down its long, sinuous neck and began ripping at what had been the face of one of the smaller bodies. So this is the ultra-civilized, oh-so-superior Solarian Lake's view of protecting another planet, she thought grimly. And they have the goal to label the ballroom terrorists. She felt her hands clenching into fists and made herself sit back, breathe deeply, and remember what Master Tai had taught her about channeling anger. It didn't seem to help as much as usual. Do you think that was you so Lord Godly, sir? She heard Commander Pope ask, and Commodore Terakov snorted harshly. Do you think it matters? He asked in reply. If it was Yardley, she did it with Yusel's knowledge and support. And from our intelligence reports on Yusel, not to mention what we monitored on the way in, she's the kind who's going to be hands-on whenever she gets the opportunity. Agreed, sir, Pope nodded. But if it was Yardley's presidential guard thugs who actually carried out the hanging instead of the gendarmerie, you know Yusel's going to claim it was all the local authorities of an independent star nation. She sure as hell didn't have anything to do with it. And? Terakov turned his head to look at the commander. No matter what really happened here, she'll claim that in front of any tribunal. Or she would if the opportunity ever arose. He smiled thinly. And no tribunal or court of inquiry we could possibly impanel is ever going to prevent Abruzzi and his E&I shills from claiming it was Lombroso or Yardley. Unless, of course, they decide they can actually convince the solely public we did it in the process of crushing the courageous local resistance to our callous imperialistic invasion. Then, having produced all of these perfectly serviceable atrocities, we decided we'd record them all, and use them so our propaganda could fasten responsibility for them onto that splendid patriot and democratically elected president Sven Lombroso and Mobius's stalwart ally and defender, Brigadier Yusel. Commander Pope, Helen noticed, looked like he really wished he thought Terakov was joking with those last two sentences. For that matter, she wished she thought that. The Commodore saw his chief of staff's expression and grimaced. The last thing anybody on the other side's going to be interested in at this point is accurate reportage, he pointed out. They've never felt any compunction about distorting the truth to justify their peacetime policies. Why in heaven's name should they hesitate for a minute to manufacture atrocities out of whole cloth in wartime? And they won't even have to manufacture these— We'll have provided the visuals. 
All they'll have to do is cut and edit and modify the audio. Should we be providing it at all then, sir? Pope asked, his eyes troubled. Of course we should. Sooner or later, this war's going to be over. When that happens, accurate records are going to be essential, and not just from a dry historical perspective. Even more importantly, we need to show our people what this is really about right now, while it's happening. That's the real reason I want still to make sure we have every bit of this absolutely certified and verified. I'd love to see some of the people in old Chicago responsible for this. He tossed his head in the direction of those pitiful, decaying bodies. Treated to the same penalty, but I don't see that happening unless we actually physically occupy old Terra. And somehow I don't see that happening either. We can always hope, though. And in the meantime... His voice dropped, turning as icy as his eyes. I want this evidence available when we deal with the people who actually did it. Yes, sir. Pope nodded firmly. I understand, but it's... Excuse me, Commander. Atlante Mantella interrupted respectfully. Pope and Tarakov turned towards her, and she looked at the Commodore. I don't have Mr. Brightbox, sir, she said, but I do have Miss Blanchard. Do we have visual or just audio? Tarakov asked. Both, sir. The signal quality isn't very good, though. Put her on the main display, Tarakov directed, and turned towards the display as a woman's image appeared on it. She was dark-haired and dark-eyed, with a strained, exhausted face smudged with dirt. An ugly bruise discolored her right cheek and temple, and a Solarian-built pulse rifle was slung across her shoulder as she crouched over what was obviously a handheld comm. Ms. Blanchard, I'm Commodore Ivars Alexovich Tarakov, Royal Manticoran Navy, he said. We're here in response to Ms. Summers' message. Summers? Blanchard's voice was as exhausted as she looked, and she shook her head. Was that the name? She grimaced. I didn't know. Operational security. I don't think operational security is going to be an issue very much longer, Terakov told her grimly. Maybe not. It's the only reason some of us are still alive, though. She scrubbed her hand across her face, smearing the dirt. I can believe that. Are you ready to trust me, though? You had this calm combination, and we saw the explosions from down here. She shrugged. We've been getting our asses kicked for the last week. I don't see the bastards deciding they have to get tricky at this point. So I'll take that as a yes? He asked dryly. Exactly. She managed a quick, fleeting grimace of a smile. Oh, and by the way, we're happy as hell to see you. She shook her head again. I've got to say, when Michael told me you folks were backing us, it surprised the hell out of me. You're not the only one, he said even more dryly. Then his eyes narrowed. On the other hand, you just mentioned Michael. Am I correct in assuming that was a reference to Michael Breitbach? Yeah, she made a face. After all this time, knowing you know both of our names makes me a little nervous. Nothing personal. Understandable. But may I ask why we got you at this combination and not him? My understanding from Miss Summers was that this was Mr. Breitbach's combination. It is. Her weary voice was suddenly leaden. Unfortunately, he's not here to answer. What happened? He was on his way to meet with one of our cell leaders, and there was a sweep through the area. He didn't come back. She raked the fingers of her right hand through her short-cut, filthy-looking hair. Do you think Yusel and Lombroso knew who they caught? No way, she shook her head hard. It would have been all over what's left of the news channels if they knew they'd gotten him. He was unarmed, 
and he wasn't even carrying his calm, which is why I happen to have it. Her image moved dizzyingly on the display as she swept the hand holding Brightbox calm around for emphasis. I'm guessing they figure he's just one more civilian they've swept up. All right, Terikov nodded. That makes sense. He pursed his lips for a moment. I haven't contacted Lombroso or Yusel yet. What's your situation? The real situation, I mean, not what they're putting out on the information channels. To be honest, it's almost as bad as they're saying it is, she admitted, setting the calm down on a table or desk of some sort and perching herself on an overturned trash can. Lombroso and that bitch Hadley started the sweeps a couple of weeks before Yusel got here, Beatings, casual brutality, secret arrests, something more imaginative when they had time for it, that kind of thing. Then they started the public executions. Her jaw tightened. Not just for people who were actually caught doing something criminal, either. They were making examples, and they didn't even pretend they weren't. She fell silent for a moment, nostrils flaring, and Terikov waited patiently. We couldn't hold our people when that kind of shit started. If Michael hadn't moved and hadn't made sure everyone knew he was moving, he'd have lost control, and Hadley would have picked us off one at a time as each cell tried something on its own. And he had a pretty good nothing-left-to-lose plan already in place. We damned near took Hadley, the PG's HQ, and the President's Palace in the first 18 hours, killed a bunch of the bastards, and shot up at least two-thirds of their remaining armor. For a moment, her eyes were fierce, proud. Then her shoulders slumped. Damned near wasn't good enough, though. We had three-quarters of the capital, five other cities completely, and most of the countryside on this continent, but we couldn't break into the final compound. And then Usel got here landed her damned intervention battalions and launched orbital strikes on half a dozen smaller cities and towns that had come over to our side. That's when Michael pulled us out of the other cities. He wouldn't give them any kind of excuse to do the same thing to a major population center. But he figured they wouldn't try the same crap on landing. Too much real estate they don't want to lose, and any strikes would be too damned close to them. He was right about that, too, so they've been coming after us, house by house. She bared her teeth. We've been costing them, but you've seen the news channels. Yes, I have. Terikov's eyes were fiery blue ice. We haven't seen any imagery about the orbital strikes, though. Do you have a casualty estimate from them? His tone was calm, almost conversational, but his expression wasn't. Best guess is somewhere around 450,000, Blanchard said. I see. Terikov looked at her for a moment or two, then inhaled sharply. Our recon platforms show you holding a crescent around the southern and western edges of the capital. Is that accurate? She nodded. And Yusel and Lombroso hold the area around the presidential palace? They hold everything we don't, she said frankly. Everything from the sports center to the tower complex just east of where I am now. She managed a tired grin. I'm assuming you've got my signal located? We know where you are, Terikov agreed with a brief answering smile. What about the eastern side of town, in closer to the presidential palace? That's mainly been cleared, I mean, they've run out all the civilians, except for a handful of residential towers dedicated to off-worlders and corporate employees. And I gather from the newscasts that they're holding their prisoners in the soccer stadium? That's right. She nodded again. President Lombroso Memorial Soccer Stadium. Son of a bitch just loves naming things for himself. What can you tell us about their security situation around the stadium? Not much. They've pushed us too far back. I'm guessing you can see more from orbit than we can see from down here. 
You're probably right about that. Tarakov nodded again. He stood thinking, arms still folded across his chest, then nodded slowly, more to himself than to Blanchard. Thank you, Miss Blanchard, he said. I think it's time I had a few words with President Lombroso and his associates. Perhaps I can convince them of the error of their ways. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 41, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey, Christopher Ciafani, and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a deep well of gratitude mixed with smoky mountain moonshine to David Drake, author of the most excellent horror and dark fantasy collection, Night and Demons. Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Music